The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello there and welcome to another edition of the Cambridge Film Show, broadcasting here on Cambridge 105 Radio across the city and South Cambridgeshire. We might finally be enjoying some slightly better weather and you may think, well, what has life got to offer me post-Top Gun Maverick? But sunshine is overrated, cinema air conditioning is not. So let's take a respite from hay fever and let us tell you what you can catch and what you should not, what, what you should miss at multiplexes, art cinemas and on streaming services. We may not have Tornado Tom, but trust me when I say that we have The King, A Dame, Astrophysics and a bunch of other stuff. So if you're looking for opinions, you've come to the right place. I'm Emma Marchant, back in the host chair and joining me today are Spencer Dewar, Spencer Duru. <laughs> Luke Owen. <laughs> Good afternoon. Henry Jordan. Hello. Lorcan O'Neill. Hello. And in a minute, Vicky Air, she's been stuck in traffic. And we do have a lineup. We'll be looking at Baz Luhrmann's rhinestone covered Elvis biopic, Dame Emma getting both sexy and talky, and good luck to you, Leo Grand, and Top Gun Maverick director Joseph Kaczynski's straight to Netflix follow Spiderhead. Let's Throw in a touch of Disney, Disney and Pixar magic in Lightyear and Chris Harp teaming up with someone who's not The Rock, but good friend of the show, of the <laughs> good show, sorry, good friend of show regular, Ashley Whitaker instead, Mr. Woody Harrelson in The Man for Toronto. But let's start with the scares and see how the black phone can help our hero escape from... Ah, no... Apologies, Vicky's, Vicky's on that one. She's outside. Let's start with Spiderhead and take a little trip to the future, to a, to a dystopian future prison. Hello again. Sorry I'm late, Mr. Epnesty. Not late at all. That's Spiderhead. We're proud of our work. Your presence in this facility, while technically a punishment, is a privilege. Where have you been? Drug study. In science, we have to explore the unknown. They've been testing me up and down. A lot weirder stuff than usual. This is new frontier stuff here. Before we begin, I need your permission to administer Dan 40. This place can really mess with your head. Drip on? Acknowledge. Drip on? Acknowledge. Acknowledge. Yeah, acknowledge. That was a trailer for Spiderhead. What happens when the director of Top Gun Maverick and Tron Legacy has some spare time and teams up with Chris Hemsworth? Well, let us tell you, it's an adaptation of a short story by George Saunders. Based in the near future, Spiderhead follows the story of Jeff, played by Miles Teller, incarcerated in a prison come sort of Dr. Evil Island lair following a horrible mistake in his past. But is this a prison? or a huge experiment for mood-altering drugs run by Chris Hemsworth's Dr. Abnesti with mad scientists dialed up to 11. Henry, I'm going to come to you first. You are a big fan of Top Gun Maverick, we reviewed this together, and of Tron Legacy, um, but also, famously on this show, not such a fan of a, of a, of a Netflix original. Whereabouts did this fall for you? Um, yeah, I mean, I, as you say, Emma, I have been unfortunate and I've oh. reviewed quite a lot of really terrible Netflix originals on this show. Um, and not to kind of give the game away, there may be another one coming later. Spiderhead is actually nearer the top of the pile, which is a bit of a depressing indictment. It is, it's kind of fine, basically. It's like one of the weaker episodes of Black Mirror. It's got this really great concept, which you were kind of spelling out there. There's this, like, future prison thing where people are being 
tested on these mood-altering drugs that completely change like their emotional states at the the flick of a switch. And there's this kind of charismatic businessman who's leading the whole thing, and maybe he's got sinister intentions. Ooh, what's going on? And it's a great setup, and you go, oh, cool, and it's the Top Gun Maverick guy, and it's it's got like attractive people in it I can watch, and then it just kind of goes nowhere for two whole mm. hours. Like, nothing happens at all. What a dreadful piece of work. <laughs> Sorry. Well, Spencer, I was Sorry. about to come to you. I was going to say Chris Hemsworth kicked off lockdown with Extraction, which was another Netflix original. I believe mm-hmm. they're even making a sequel on that one. And despite really being one of Marvel's bigger draw cards, I mean, you know, we've got obviously Thor Love and Thunder about to hit our multiplexes resoundingly. He's back with this kind of much smaller film why is that can he carry a film well the thing is let's let's start with chris hemsworth is a beautiful human being he's just he's just visually as uh just a sight to look at and i think that's really why this film exists um it's clumsily written um and at the very beginning just so i'm gonna waffle bit of waffle um at the very beginning of the film there's a character i don't know whether you remember this um where a character is forced to laugh and i knew from that that little extract that the film was not worth seeing nor putting much time into it but i thought to myself okay i'm going to endure this maybe there's dedication a, to yeah, the show yes yeah, absolutely you. i thought maybe there is a story here who knows but it was there wasn't there was it was clumsily written it was um uh, just beautiful people with fake characters and really poor storyline and there's almost like do you remember the bit where, where like the characters are fornicating mm-hmm. yeah do you remember that yeah well, what did you think of that uh, there was there was something to happen. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's the people are they. You work for Netflix and you have to go into work. And if you don't come up with ideas, whether they're good or bad, then you lose your job. Okay, and that's I- how I felt about that. I, I mean, I personally, I watched it and I felt from a promising premise, it did fizzle out a bit, but I did find some enjoyment. Luke, this also obviously has Miles Teller, who is hot to trot at the moment with his portrayal of Rooster and, you know, post Whiplash is, is you know, one of our established new generation of actors. Did you think, I mean, was his, what was his involvement with this? Is that better than Chris Hemsworth? Miles Teller is fine in this film. He is by, by no means the worst thing in the film. I think the problem is Chris Hemsworth. We sort of mentioned that he's the, the star attraction of this film, but he's so horrifically miscast, not only just because he's an incredibly handsome scientist, but because his role in the film changes what the original story is. The casting of him makes him more of a, a cult of personality. The film... I think struggles because it doesn't really know how to balance the original sci-fi concept with trying to make this a Chris Hemsworth vehicle. Mm. And you never really get the the comment on the prison system or Big Pharma. It becomes just a story about this, the lone bad guy, the the suit blazer and trouser wearing tech guy who spouts techno babble and he's evil and Miles Teller has to overcome him. And it just makes it so conventional and so muddled. Okay, I think... (laughs) I I quite quite I did quite enjoy it because I do find Chris Hemsworth incredibly charismatic. Last word to you, Henry. Would you say, are we judging... It's hard to judge 
we talk about this a lot on this show. We're judging things separately as a Netflix drop as to, I mean, and this is all over, you know, the socials at the moment. It's the biggest, it's the bit, most streamed film on Netflix. Do you think we're able to forgive a lot more with Netflix, Netflix original? How would you have felt had this got a cinema release? Yeah, I think if I'd kind of, you know, gone into a cinema and like paid money, just kind of hand over fist for this, I would be a lot more upset. But because it's part of a kind of service that I'm already paying for, it's something that like I watched with a friend, we sat and we kind of, talked over a lot of the film which we wouldn't have been able to do in a cinema and it kind of it, it helps lower the bar I think which this film kind of needs it's just it's a Netflix film it's hitting those buttons it's even got a scene where there's an ironic happy song played over a bunch of violence happening it's kind of it's formulaic it is not terrible and I think that's why it's doing well because it is fine but it's just I think there is so much better on Netflix right now. Well, we will be moving to what may be even worse on Netflix yeah. at the end. But there you go. Let's finish <laughs> off with that resounding It's Fine from Henry. Spiderhead mm. is a um, certificate 15 and is streaming on Netflix. Okay, so to go back to where we were meant to start, because Vicky, hello Vicky, has now made it through the crushing case of traffic to be with us. So, we are going to start now with some scares and see how the black phone can help our hero escape from Ethan Hawke's clutches. I'll be home in the morning. Where are you going? I'm staying over at Susie's tonight. What's new? The flyer. The paper's calling the grabber. I wish you wouldn't call him that. You don't actually believe that story, do you? Because he can't hear you, and he doesn't really take kids that safe. You goof. <laughs> well, isn't that just peachy keen? You need some help? You see that? Yeah. <laughs> Would you hand me my hat? Yes, sir. I am a part-time magician. That was the trailer for The Black Phone, Bloomhouse's latest addition to their horror canon. It's based on a short story by Joe Hill, son of horror maestro Stephen King, which was first published in 2004. The Black Phone tells the story of Finney, abducted by Ethan Hawke's The Grabber, but somehow able to communicate with his previous victims via a black phone in the locked room he is held in. Vicky, as I said, this was adapted from a short story mm. by Joe Hill, but Scott Derrickson, the director, has made the conscious decision to set this in the late 1970s. He has. In Colorado, which is an era obviously long with the shadows of serial killers, mm. particularly famous ones. Did this aesthetic work for you? Absolutely. Um, I can't... I had a really good time in this film. I didn't really have any expectations, but in general, the first, even the introduction bit, it has its own score for the soundtrack and it like instantly puts you into this horror setting of the 70s. It's like uh, FBI like kind of photo collages, all these missing kids. It's got this soundtrack that's similar to like the beginning of American Horror Story and the X-Files and like it's it's very alluding to like how dark they're going to take this um, and it starts quite innocently but instantly you're like okay this is a horror film this is something bad is definitely going to happen and I'm, I'm a little bit the more I've thought about it it's not Scott Derrick Derrickson's like scariest film but I've ha I had a really good time with it excellent talking of Scott Derrickson Luke he directed this after he was taken off um, Doctor Strange and the multiverse of that madness according to the old adage creative differences which you'd think would have to sting, but has he come back with... with do you think this was a kind of, you know, a, a, a dreamy creative project for him? Has he come back with something that he really believes in? 
I would hope so. I think this film is very close to being very good. Um, I think Vicky hit the nail on the head with the sort of the, the style of the film really allows him to do something that he wouldn't necessarily be doing with these big blockbuster films. And the 70s setting gives it a very unique uh, sensibility. Um, with, with horror thrillers like this, there's always a bit of room for sort of some heavy-handed direction. And I feel like it falls down in, in a couple of places with some stylistic choices that I think take away from the, the filmmaking. But otherwise, I think a very impressive film and I think one of Bloomhouse's better uh, recent releases. Vicky, you said not his scariest film. Yeah. Would uh, that does that actually go to is it Sinister? Uh, yeah, so he um he directed Sinister, which um is probably in my like top three of generally terrified me, like think about at night as someone that watches a lot of horror, generally stayed with me for a few days. And he produced Sinister Two as well. And with this film he brought on, you know, Ethan Hawke, who was in Sinister and Eddie Ransom, which is um also like it's part of his duo, I guess, of horror now. And um so he, he, it's when you go into this. I wanted to be terrified, but I was alone. Um, didn't realize Ashley was a few rows behind. <laughs> I was, I was hoping it wouldn't be too jump scary because I didn't want to embarrass myself. But generally, it was just more interesting rather than anything. Um, and I think Ethan Hawke. Uh, generally played he he wasn't as scary as i wanted him to be you know he has the whole uh, tom savini mask he has the whole um horror get up um inspiration for maybe science of the lambs like uh kind of character but it never quite got me there um to be really scared but more than anything i was just interested in the characters themselves rather than this big thing that was about to happen like scare wise i think interesting is a really good <laughs> word to describe this film <laughs> Because it went in a direction that I really wasn't expecting, which is the, the titular black phone. I won't spoil it because, you know, that would be ruining it for other people. Um, but it's not... I was expecting the phone to be some kind of scary element, where it was more an ex a way to bring in a supernatural element that's kind of somewhat unsettling, but it's mostly about character development. Well, that was going to be my mm. question, actually. It's no secret to anyone who listens regularly to this show that I am an enormous Stephen King fan. Mm. And so I have read most of Joe Hill's books as well. And like I say, this came out in, in, a, in a collection of short stories in 2004. And it's a very, very slim, even by short story standards, it's about 15 pages, mm. that's it. And it, it's very heavy on that supernatural element. Do you think... I mean, Stephen King obviously has become one of our most adapted writers, mm. particularly, I mean, he's having a real renaissance at the moment with all kinds of things, TV and film. Do you think this could happen with other, you know, Joe Hill is credited with writing, he wrote this as well, based on his own short story. So do you think, based on this, that as a script writer, he could also, I'm know, not Stephen King watch his back? I'm not quite sure, because the thing is with this film, it has a lot of bulk elements that didn't really have to be there. So each um, of the kids that has been murdered all have their own introduction to give some emotional value, you know, with a fit, like a dazed and confused soundtrack to go along with each character introduction. And you can see that they're trying to fill out what could be a, re a really gripping plot in like short film. Um, but instead, it's a feature, it's a blockbuster. So it needs to like it needs to fill out the space and the time with that. Not gonna lie, I really appreciate the introductions to all the characters. It kind of gave this almost Stranger Things, but the darker turn summer of 84, which came out a few years ago. Uh, kind of turned to it, so I um I did appreciate that. But people that are there for a really and like anticipating like kind of crescendo of a horror film 
will not get that with this at all. Okay, so it's a quieter kind yes. of film and less scary than sinister. Luke, any last words? Um, I think we're we're pretty much in total agreement on this. I think <laughs> wonderful. The the real there's only one major issue I have with the film is you have two different supernatural elements. The first with the the phone, which I believe is what the story is based on, and then they add in a sort of a second bit, which is the daughter who has these dreams slash premonitions, and it's all just a little bit conventional and it doesn't go anywhere. And I wish they'd spent more time with the phone. Okay. So very nearly very good, as I think you said at the beginning. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that I think that's a pretty that's a that's a pretty positive review from both of you guys, and it is a fifteen. The Black Friend certificate fifteen and showing at both the light and the view. Let us take a trip into space. Buzz Lightyear mission log, stardate 3901. After a full year of being marooned, our first hyperspeed test flight is a go. Who are you talking to? Uh, no one. You were narrating again. I was not. Just doing the mission log. You do know no one ever listens to the... I know that. Narrating helps me focus. Ready, Captain Lightyear? Ready as I'll ever be, Commander Hawthorne. This is exciting. A new adventure. I'm going to grant you four minutes to be off-planet, but then you come right back to us. To infinity. And beyond. You are clear for hyperlaunch. Beep, boop, beep, boop, beep, boop. That was the trailer for Lightyear. Disney Pixar have not released a film in the cinema, I think I'm right in saying this, since pre-COVID. Soul was obviously straight to streaming, Red Pound Turning Red was straight to streaming, so they decided to come back with the sort of prequel to Toy Story. Lightyear, it's the origin film of the Buzz Lightyear action figure from the Toy Story franchise. Chris Evans has taken over from Tim Allen to voice this 1980s version of Buzz, here stuck on a planet thanks to his space ranger failures along with his best friend Alicia Hawthorne. But he is determined to get everyone back to Earth. So along with a robot cat sidekick and some alleged real, real, science, tested, real science tested astrophysics, He's gonna, he's, he can only, he's gonna do it, but he's gonna stay young while the world ages around him. Lorcan, like I, like I just said, interestingly, after giving Turning Red a joint streaming and Dis, you know, Disney, Plus cinema, um, Disney Plus release, Pixar have gone all out for this one. Did it deserve it? Absolutely not. If there is one film that uh, Disney slash Disney Pixar uh, should have dropped on streaming. Like Turning Red, Turning Red was comfortable to watch at home. Like, but I was surprised at the quality of it. It really should have been a cinema release. Um, but this was the story's just a bit naff. It's trying to do like clever Chris Nolan kind of stuff, but it's all the well. Let, let me just start off by saying the film plays a very dirty trick. I think at the start, um, it, it starts off. And it says there's text that comes up um, before anything happens, saying that in 19, this film came out in 1995. And it's the film that caused Andy from Toy Story to fall in love with the Buzz Lightyear character. So you're supposed to be watching this film as if it's from 1995. But the dirty trick is kind of like telling kids, oh, this is Andy's favorite film. If you don't like this film, then you're, you're disagreeing with Andy, the beloved child from that beloved series um, that, of course, Pixar started without Disney. Um, so that's kind of a dirty trick. And then they... They retcon certain certain elements for for unknown reasons. Obviously, in Toy Story, it's very much uh, Andy's playing with uh, Buzz Lightyear and the evil robot Zerg. He keeps saying evil robot Emperor Zerg, blah blah blah. But that's 
not well, not not to get too heavy in the spoilers, but that's not exactly what happens, and the twist they throw in is kind of confusing. And there's just lots of odd choices, and overall, it's quite dull. Well, yeah, I would I, I would agree with that. I mean, it it says something, and in fact, out of the sheer number of viewers we've got this week, it's only you and I who mm-hmm. and my 11 year old son felt so sorry for me that he came with me. He didn't really want to. He was like, "Oh, mum, you can't go by yourself. You're like such a loser. I'll come with you." So that's kind of an example, I think. And he's 11, for heaven's sake. But um, I was going to say you did make very clear, obviously, you're a little bit. You you you've got a geeky interest in physics and astrophysics. Did the science stand up? Is it real life tested? Um, I mean, it's 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 as close as a film is probably going to get. It's it's obviously taking a concept and stretching it to uh, family film kind of stuff. I mean, it's. I will say it's nice. I always like space stuff that encourages um, people to believe in like going beyond Earth and space travel and how um, how well people can work together when they're trying to achieve such a mammoth goal like this. That there is that sense up to a certain point and then they introduce a character that's very anti that and then that's you think that's going to be the villain and the film goes into completely different the movie sets up so many things that you're like oh, okay I know what's going to happen and then it subverts them but in a much worse way than what the original setup was and I think as well when you're making a film for children you don't necessarily need to subvert stuff because that is not kids are not going to the cinema to be shocked and surprised by the twists that story, by the twists and turns that stories tell you know they are going for fun sidekicks quippy dialogue and also either the animation I mean obviously animation it's it's incredible and interestingly this is directed by Angus McLean I think it's his directorial debut for Disney Pixar but he was a chief animator for Buzz in all the Toy Story um, oh okay because um, I watched a, a sort of a Disney Plus special very briefly on this and um, Pete Doctor was being interviewed and was saying oh you know obviously there wasn't very much done that to be seen but um, Pete Doctor was being was being interviewed and he was saying that you know Angus this guy was always the guy he'd go to to, to you know to, to work on Buzz's character so this is I presume a real labour of love for Angus McLean because he must be the go-to guy but he must have lived with the Buzz character for the last 30 years but I just thought they could have the colours to me were very faded mm. it wasn't, there was no kind of sense of, of, of popping or, or physical Pixar have been so great with exciting animation from, you know, like you said, Turning Red to me, I thought that the pandas in that were incredible. And you go back to things like Inside Out and Soul and the animation and, uh, sorry, the animation, the imagination, and particularly that whole kind of fizzing aspect they had in Inside Out. This was so generic to me. Well, I don't know, because I'm not a big fan of Inside Out or Soul. I kind of feel like Disney are turning... uh Take the Pixar in the '90s was the behemoth of ch- like the peak children's entertainment, and Disney's just kind of turning them into the B sides now. Like, from, okay, for, what for about something Disney like matches. Luca or Finding Nemo? I'm, I was it was the colors. I think I just oh felt no, like color, I was yeah, this watching. this it doesn't feel like a labor of love at all. It because it, it's the plot is very stop start one step forward two steps back they there's um a lot of talk about crystals and like that every time like they're looking for a crystal they're trying to make a crystal this crystal gets stolen every time something happened with a crystal there's a kid behind me is just like what's what's what is this what is that crystal and then at one point during one of the many 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 boring talky scenes a, a, a different little girl was just like this is terrible because it's <laughs> so boring and like like you say it's not it's not there's not there's not lots of color in motion to keep young kids entertained it's too science heavy for for little little kids it's too that's too boring for all kids really there's there's just not there's not a lot happen every time there's a revelation that doesn't really make sense um they try to shoehorn in a whole bunch of emotion with this new character who i did not care for whatsoever it's just 
I don't know. It's just it's, it's a film about a space ranger, and the whole film is him being unable to be a space ranger. Like, wow, what a bizarre like. Do a Star Wars? He goes on an adventure. No, he's stuck on a planet, and they have to try to get them off the planet. I think Spencer. No, but I have a question for both of you. Um, five point two on IMDb is that worthy of five point two? It's quite low. Well, it's low for IMDb, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, what do you guys give it? <laughs> I would give it four out of ten, probably. There was a child who's literally okay. been carried out under her mother's arm during oh. the movie we saw, who was just crying. Oh, no. I think she was just overdone. It's disappointing because obviously Lightyear is yeah. Buzz Lightyear himself and Toy Story is such a beloved franchise and I thought Toy Story 4 was one of the more perfect films that's come out actually I'm a huge Pixar fan but I thought it's one of the and so this just leaves a bit of a taste it feels like it just is rolling into all these live action Star Wars knockoffs that, mm. that Disney yeah. Plus are doing it just felt like they've kind of taken some of the backgrounds from that and turned them animated and then they've, they've just ticked boxes with like right he needs to have a sassy sidekick he needs to have a best friend he needs to have a, a cute animal sidekick which is the robot cat socks yeah. and we haven't even mentioned that Lorcan's utter favourite Taika Waititi who seems to be doing mm-hmm. everything he pops up doing some well he's just doing his, his regular just doing shtick. his shtick but I think the, the weird thing is as well it's like it's Buzz Lightyear like it's imagine imagine making an Indiana Jones film where Indiana Jones has to learn to work as part of a team to achieve a goal like it's you want to mm-hmm. see Buzz Lightyear off an adventure doing his thing True. but it's just he's, he's saddled with all these side characters none of which are funny not a single joke lands and he has to like train them up and find the the spirit of teamwork and it's like no I, you want to see him go out and have an adventure so what, what's your number what do you say if, uh, oh, we've got a four I would say around a four yeah. Okay, four. I would say, and my, my my last comment on it would be that, yeah, it made me realise that a lot of the joy of Lightyear, of Buzz Lightyear in the Toy Story movies, is his complete, you know, factual, literal con- concept. Yeah. The fact that, he, and, and when you take that away, yeah, he's just point. like this sort of slightly depressed, failed space <laughs> ranger. The whole thing is like, whoa, that's taken out all the, that sucks out all the fun and joy for that. So there you go. I think Lorca and I are both. Yeah, don't, 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 don't waste. Even, even when it comes out on Disney Plus, mm. I'd say you probably give it. If a you have a Disney Plus subscription, do not pay whatever. It, don't, don't pay the extra for it if you have to. But if you have a Disney Plus subscription and you have small children, then maybe give it a whirl. But honestly, I wouldn't bother. <laughs> so that's Lightyear. It is a certificate PG, and it is showing at the Light and the View. Cambridge 105 Radio. On Monday evening, join DJ Kuriakin for two hours of Roots, Reggae, Dancehall and Lovers Rock. It's called Painting on Silence, the album, and it's the uppercut band collaborating with a variety of artists. You've also got people like Glenn Washington on there, Carol Thompson, Luciano and others. Uh, you'll definitely be hearing more from that. Revelation Time, Monday night at 9 on Cambridge 105 Radio. Yeah, so just keep it luck. Listen live on Radio Player. Are you suffering from buffering? Find yourself screaming, not streaming? Or do you just lag behind? Then it's time to demand better broadband. City Fibre is building a brand new full fibre network across the UK, giving you access to broadband from a range of providers that's more reliable and up to 20 times faster than average. So you can stream, game and video call without interruption. Get connected to full fibre today. Choose your provider at citifibre.com slash Cambridge 105. 
CKLG accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Lawrence, director of CKLG, responsible for business services. We understand that running a successful business brings many challenges. Our experienced business services team provide a bespoke service and offer professional advice at every stage of your business journey, allowing you the freedom to focus more on what you do best. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or visit our website cklg.co.uk. CKLG Accountants, your partner in business, your partner in life. Cambridge 105 Radio. You are listening to the Cambridge Film Show here on Cambridge 105 Radio with me, Emma Marchant, and Lorcan O'Neill, Spencer Dure, Vicky, Vicky Air, Luke Irwin, and Henry Jordan. Um, we are fairly hurtling through this week's releases. We still have Netflix comedy. Action, the man from Toronto, and some stagey sexy times with Dame Emma in Thank You. <laughs> Sorry, good luck to you, Leo Grande. But it's time to look at the legend of the week, and none of us are leaving the building just yet. There are some who'd make me out to be the villain of this here story. Let's don't let a good Are you born with destiny? Or does it just come knocking at your door? There's a young singer from Memphis, Tennessee. Give him a warm hayride welcome. Mr. Elvis Presley. Get a haircut, buttercup. In that moment, I watched that skinny boy. It has been a long time promised, but here it is. Bad Lerman has not been on our big screens for nine years since The Great Gatsby. I know, nine years. I was also shocked when I wrote this intro. But is so very back with his long in-production in Elvis biopic. Once upon a time in Hollywood, Alum, Austin Butler has recreated himself as a king and impressed, the, and impressed the Presley family, but will he impress us? Telling the story of Elvis from a country Memphis phenomenon with the dangerously swiveling hips through the birth of rock and roll, army conscription, forced musical career, leather rebirth and Vegas residency. Fat or not. Told through Tom Hanks's Colonel Tom Parker's eyes, Elvis does not hold back. I'm going to start now. We've Almost all of us, apart from Vicky, have seen this, but I'm going to start with Lorcan because I think we need to start with um, some really positive feedback on this. How did you think about this? There was so much talk about who was going to end up as, as, as Elvis, and before they settled on Austin Butler, I believe they auditioned An Ansel Elgort, Miles Teller, Aaron Taylor-Johnson, and even Harry Styles, amongst others. Was Austin Butler the right choice? Give me a second. I'm just thinking about Austin Butler again. Um, he is absolutely fantastic. Um, his yeah. performance is... Uh, just incredible. Uh, I read that uh, for the first for the first half of the film or so, it's all him singing, and then as the film goes on and Elvis gets older, they mix in more of Elvis's actual performances. Which uh, Emma, you let me know this that uh, they do that visually as well towards the end, um, very very uh, effectively. Um, there is. I was shocked at how much is going on in the film. There's lots. There's lots of commentary. There's lots of commentary about 
Um, obviously, the story is being told from Colonel Parker, who's not going to give the most favorable account. And it's just like this mean man who's like, let's take this historical figure and, and just like try to warp him and focus on all the horrible stuff. When really, the film is like, can we not just celebrate this person who achieved a really huge kind of... Uh, a, a, a huge cultural achievement uh, and brings joy to so many people. Uh, there's a, there's a not so subtle dig at cancel culture, which was quite amusing. Um, whenever Colonel Parker is like coming up with all the merchandise, he's uh, he's made, he, he talks about how he made the I hate Elvis badges as well as I love Elvis badges. And there's a great line where he says, "Oh, if no one's if you're not charging for hate, then who's profiting?" Kind of thing, which is a fantastic line for this generation, I think. Um, but sorry to go back to the original point. Austin Butler is absolutely fantastic. It's a five-star performance. It's a five-star film just for his performance alone, mm, in yeah, my yeah. opinion. Spencer, the Presley family have also gone all out to endorse this telling of the Elvis story, that's for sure. So, and, and Lorcan touched briefly on this, and this, I, I was very fond of this film, but this is a question I, I, I bring mm. up for it. Is it too starry-eyed in its portrayal of Elvis as this sort of almost innocent puppet in the hands of the evil Colonel Tom that's Parker? A, and coming from yeah. that... How is the casting of Tom Hanks in this? That's a good question. Um, by the way, I completely agree with um, the co the casting of Austin Butler. Wow, what a fantastic performance! Uh, could anyone have done it as well? I don't know. It was that good. It was special. Um, in terms of Tom Hanks, we've got to talk about this dodgy accent. It wasn't it wasn't a Dutch accent at all. I don't know where he. I th I thought he's a he's a two he's a back-to-back -back Oscar winner. He should know how to do a Dutch accent. Maybe he based it on Goldmember. <laughs> yeah. He based it on Schmuck Even and a Pancake. Even that, yeah, yeah. Milk and a Pancake. Um, no, but um, Tom Hanks, I mean, look, the, the story, you, you, have, you have to build a story around something. And Elvis was the protagonist. Did The question you asked me was, um, is... Was Elvis um, the um, was he like fake? Um, was there like faux sympathy for him? Um, I I don't think so. I think that he 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 came into his own in the latter part of the film, where he was um, uh, like sh sh showing. Okay, I I own this, and I'm gonna get rid of my bad manager. Um, he sort of overcame it. I think. I think it's. Rather than saying faux sympathy, I guess I mean I am a huge I am a huge Elvis fan. The first song at my wedding was a, was an Elvis song, and and so I've I've read up a fair, and there have been some very much much less pleasant things written biographies written about him, and I just think it really did, it didn't show you how much the Memphis Mafia impacted on him, how much mm. of, of this was some it was some of you know Elvis's choice himself, Luke. I'm going to come to you because you were, well, A, you've got points to make, but let me also ask, through Strictly, from Strictly Ballroom, through Art Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge, Baz Luhrmann is famed for excess and glitter and this camp aesthetic that is really all his. Here, did we need it with a story and a character this big? But also, give me your points. I think when you have a Baz Luhrmann film, you know what you're going to let yourself in for. I think the formula for knowing whether you'll like this film is as simple as, do you like Baz Luhrmann films? Mm. It is so excessive um, in both a good and positive way. I think Austin Butler's performance, as we can all agree, is terrific when he's on stage, but we see so little actual of the dramatic element of Elvis behind the scenes. Um, 
and I think one of the real flaws of the film is that it's just like an Elvis greatest hits. It just shows him on stage being great. You know, he solves racism by getting the crowds together. He protests. Mm -hmm. He does lots of terrific stuff. But it never delves into any of the more murky side of his career. And I think there's a very good reason that the Elvis estate likes this film. And it's because it's so reluctant to show anything even remotely critical of him. There's a moment early in the film where he's, you know, he's have to be the, the new family-friendly version of Elvis and he goes on stage in top hat and tails and sings to a hound dog. And we're told that this is one of the most embarrassing moments of his career, but we never see it. And the same way, he gets shipped off to the army and he has to shave off his hair. But then in the next scene, he's got a full head of hair again, mm. romancing Priscilla Presley. The pill addiction in his later career, in his later career, is barely referenced at all. I would agree. I, I agree with all of that. And like you say, I'm pretty sure this. I, I'm sure the Presley family are, yeah, are, are fond of it for these reasons. Henry, let's come to you. Um, I think part of this, and it's a long film. It's two hours and forty minutes. But I think it is partly about using Elvis as almost a sort of cipher to give you Baz Luhrmann's picture of America from the fifties, in the sixties, in the seventies. I thought there was one really interesting line where he and Priscilla are in the back of a um car and it's 1972 and she mentioned something about how he could go to a you know to, to a to a in institution to heal and it's that word it's, it's to talk about healing from his pill addiction i thought now that's a, that's mm. that's a nice touch because that's something you really probably talked about in the 70s in the 60s no one had any, any problem with what any, anyone was doing and i think that, that we have to because elvis himself is quite an enigma and has remained so what did you what what would you say to that um i am kind of fascinated by a lot of these responses because for me it is a film that kind of feels very like barely skin deep it kind of all of these things are brought up like there is the kind of the racism there is the whole thing about substance abuse but it never gets to the substance of any of it and that's okay I kind of came into this and I wanted like I wanted camp I wanted excess I wanted schlock and like the opening credits promise that was like just gemstones and rhinestones and there's this kind of spinning like casino wheel happening and it's it's dizzying and very exciting but mm. I feel like I'm in the minority I wanted more excess I didn't feel like this film went far enough I think it had to kind of really commit to being more excessive I think especially it being set in Vegas there is this kind of like the spectre of showgirls hanging over this film, oddly enough. And I just thought, I kind of want that. I want Baz Luhrmann to just go further. I want to feel like I'm being attacked. And I never was, apart from by Tom Hanks' accent. I think, I think <laughs> no. the problem is, it's a Baz Luhrmann film, not an Elvis film. And I think that's what I was frustrated by. Can I say just something? Um, one thing that I did enjoy that they, um, Baz Luhrmann did explore the theme of loneliness. I thought throughout the film, I felt like I was I was lonely just watching Elvis, and nobody was really on his side. Even when he, they were, they weren't, and he was alone. Well, and yeah, did did anyone else feel that? Well, famously. Elvis was born a twin, but his tw his twin brother was was still born. Mm. Um, so that has, and that there's a lot of talk. Like I said, I've read really a fair amount, but there's a lot of talk about how that might have impacted him. He also was incredibly close close to his mother, and I think th they did Austin Butler when some someone I can't remember who said that Austin Butler was great on stage, but didn't show. That was actually one of the tr one of the few scenes that he was given the opportunity to really show some emotion when he's sort of in his mother's closet after she's died, and that was uh, that had an incredible impact on Elvis. I believe. Mm. Um, I didn't know the guy personally, but yeah, I believe it really did. He lost her very young and he was incredibly close to her and he bought Grayson. I've been to Grayson and Grayson is a surprisingly small house for someone who had, 
you know, as much money as, let's say, he did by the end of the 60s, but mm. he never wanted to sell it or move because it was the house that he had bought for his mother and that mm. was incredibly special to him. And you're right, there is... And I think Austin Butler does a good job of, of sort of... Yeah, Elvis is a bit of a mystery cloud and enigma. And, and like you say, Baz Luhrmann does not do more than scratch the surface of that but then did he need to I think he did I think the film's paced really well as well because the, the highlight for me is it was is, is the retelling of, of his comeback special mm, when obviously yeah. then Colonel Parker comes in and smacks it all down because he doesn't want to get involved with those hippies so they not take him away from you know his money making residency but it was done th- th- when he comes out and sings If I Can Dream following Bobby Kennedy's assassination and, and, and Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, it is. it was a moment that just filled me from toes to foot with like, oh my goodness, I'm so pleased someone's put this on a big screen. Mm. And just to kind of talk about Baz as well, because like, I know some, some of us here in the studio would have liked more drama and digging into the trauma of things, uh, maybe a bit, a bit too much glitz and glamour. I thought I thought it was perfect amount of Baz. It, this feels like the film that he's been building up to for a while. I thought it was a perfect amount of glitz, perfect amount of drama, uh, and I, th- I, I don't care what Tom Hanks sounded like. Every single line delivery was laugh out loud funny, but I think that was the intent because he is a parodical figure in real life, I believe. I hope so, and also let's think that maybe by having someone as stable and secure as Tom Hanks, it then gave Austin Butler the confidence because this is a big role for him. You know, this is a, this is a big role and a big and, and yeah, although he seems to be half being Elvis in his um, in some of his interviews now. I've got no problem with that because if anyone does it well, Austin Butler does. Any last words, Luke, Henry, Spencer? Yeah, I think you're, if you love Baz Luhrmann films, you will love this film. But personally, I wanted a little more conversation and a little less action. I think listeners, oh, just to add to that, to what Luke just said, um, I think listeners should know that it's a very fast-paced style and scene transitions. Felt more like a, a sort of a highlight reel, but that's very Baz Luhrmann. It even um, has that sweeping shot, which is so like Moulin Rouge. That yeah, exactly. The, the Beale Street, the yeah. Beale Street set looked like it was almost a Moulin Rouge style Beale, Beale Street set, and they had that sweeping camera just as they have in that. But um, yes, Henry. Uh, yeah, I kind of, I basically, I went in, I wanted uh, Moulin Rouge, Baz Luhrmann, and I feel like I got Great Gatsby, Baz Luhrmann. <laughs> that at home is hopefully going to help you decide whether this is for you. <laughs> if you're me, you always want Strictly Bird, Strictly Bore and Baz Luhrmann, so maybe it fell somewhere in the middle. Um, I think they've done, a, I, I personally think Baz Luhrmann has done a cracking job with bringing a very, with, with bringing a, it, it's not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but I think he has done a cracking job in bringing a long-awaited you know, piece of work to the cinema, and it should be seen on a big screen it deserves a big screen that's for sure it's a certificate 12a and it is showing at all three cambridge cinemas okay let's take a quick change of pace and let us check in with leo and nancy out there with more sexual experience that means it's embarrassing do you want me to brush my teeth oh god this is crazy it's terrible it's wrong nancy yes come have a dance with me I guess I'm frustrated. Leo Grand, your real name? Thinking about all the places I should have been by now. No, I simply don't understand why you're doing this. This to save up for our college? That was a very little bit of good luck to you, Leo Grand, because I'm not going to lie, it's hard to find a radio safe trailer given the subject matter. This is directed by Australian director Sophie Hyde and written by 
British comedian and actress Katie Brand, who did have her own TV show back in the noughties on ITV. Emma Thompson is playing the recently widowed, retired, recently widowed and retired RE teacher Nancy, who has hired an anonymous hotel room, and also sex worker Leah Grande, played by relative newcomer Daryl McCormack. I believe he's been in a bit of Peaky Blinders, but that's about it. To reawaken fires which have perhaps long been dormant in her. Vicky. Hi. Okay. I am not going to beat around the bush. There may have been more of an ick factor if you think about this sexually... Like, if the sexes were reversed. Let's think, for example, that the Dame Emma... Dame Emma Thompson's role... Emma Thompson's role yeah. was played by Sir Kenneth Branagh, and let's say... <laughs> yeah, oh, no. ...was, <laughs> you know, was, was, was sort of some young ingenue who's done some mm. bit of TV. I mean... Is it is is all this has got to offer to us this this idea of role reversal and should we be happy this is this is being put on there but you know or is that just I mean I didn't really see it that kind of way I went into it because I, I believe it's been quite it's been made that this film is made for Emma Thompson like this is this role was written for her um, the role reversal I haven't thought about just now and I don't think I want to image that again mm -hmm. but um, I feel like this was put on to show Emma Thompson's kind of acting chops in a in a role that was made for her that sucks the life out of who she kind of is as an actress. Um, and that is what it did. Um, I didn't didn't really have a good time with this film. Um, I thought Daryl McCormack, actually, though, he kind of kept it alive in parts where obviously that i don't know if it was if it was the script or what but the light like she just made me angry for a lot of the film rather than this kind of you know emma thomas i'm used to seeing on screen and it even with the kind of subject matter that it has um it wasn't really fun or light-hearted in any kind of way <laughs> um so i don't know if that was like the main draw for this is is what people are gonna get i I really do wholeheartedly agree with you, Vicky. Spencer, it, it is essentially a very stagey two-hander. Mm, yeah, what, well, if I... anything, makes it cinematic? Did it, does it, you know, talking about things that deserve a cinema release or don't deserve a cinema release, really, what what, what would you say does that make, makes this credible to go and watch at the cinema? I'm a big fan of this film. Um, I'm uh, two versus one here. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it's a refreshing film. It feels like it should have been with us all along, really. It's quite... It's actually quite a challenge. I know this from producing films myself to actually put an entire film in one room and get away with it. Uh, it didn't feel like that. Um, Ninety percent of it's just shot in in a hotel room, and I'd say it was humorous and witty too. Like I, you know, this not just by people laughing within the cinema, um, but you know, it's it's not one of those things. It's not like a stand-up comedy, but it makes you feel makes you feel nice you know listening to uh emma thompson who by the way i think was fantastic along with daryl mccormack um yeah I, so i felt there was a, it was a positive film to watch i feel like the laughs weren't with the character though they were at the character and i think that's why i have such a problem with this film and mm. um, these are laughs from people that i find it ridiculous that a woman of maybe this age is saying these words on screen with a younger man and i just think that's completely humiliating in kind of ways and you know emma thompson um, to whom 
I mm. hold, I, again, I agree. As someone in the studio, I, I, I know I bring my age up more than once when I do this, but I am probably, cl- I'm closest in age to how old the Emma Thompson character is meant to be. By the way, I think she's meant to be about seven or eight years younger than she actually is in real life. I think Emma Thompson's about 63. This character's meant to be about 55. Mm-hmm. I'm 50, almost. So let's go from there. And I did find, honestly, when she gives this list of things that she never got to do with her husband in 31 years that she wants to do, I found, I found that slightly risable in writings. I found it very hard to believe that but I didn't laugh at it one way or another I just thought well that just doesn't really feel very real Henry obviously as well we've we've got to think about the fact that this is all about the chemistry between our two protagonists and did that chemistry work for you was it both what it was meant to be which is kind of sizzling and touching because obviously Leo Grand is meant to be helping Emma Thompson's Nancy but then in return she sort of is, 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 is meant to be sort of helping him come to terms with his own life choices if you choose to put it that way. Uh, yeah, no, I thought the kind of chemistry was kind of what kept the film alive. It's what you, like, need in a film where it's just two actors. I thought they kind of... I wasn't crazy on this, but it, it did keep the film consistently watchable. I was kind of always happy to be there with them as they kind of kept delivering these lines. And that's part of the problem, is that they did always feel like lines that were being delivered, but they were lines that I liked and lines that were funny or lines that were kind of interesting and brought up, like, good you know, things that should be brought up. I think actually the casting of Thompson is like the masterstroke of this film because, mm. and take this as the the faint praise it is, this is a film whose heart is like really in the right place. Um, and I think it's having a lot of very interesting conversations about pleasure and about connection and about sex work. And I think these are conversations that a lot of people don't have, mm. but they're conversations that people who are fans of Emma Thompson and are watching this film are now going to have. Just this morning, I was talking to my aunt, who's a similar age to you, Emma, and she said, oh, I'm going to go see that new Emma Thompson film. I don't think these are conversations that she's having a lot with her friends, and Mm. I think that actually, after watching this film, they're conversations that she might be having a bit more. And I think that's kind of what you want from this film. I mean, at the end of the day, this director, I I, I feel like if this was done with a bit more life, I would have enjoyed it a, a tons more. I mean, I had a good time with the back and forth and even the the bedroom was like the hotel room was a character in itself when it disappeared I felt like I'd been I was there for so long and when it gets taken away from the film I was like oh what I'm like I feel like quite scared I'm not in the same setting anymore and I feel like Sophie Hyde her last film was Animals I also came away with just like oh that was okay but it wasn't great and maybe that's what I think like because she had Emma Thompson in the film she had like so much to do with that and I I know that it wasn't written by her but I just maybe I wanted a bit more delivery yeah I mean I feel now like a terrible human being for being so mean about it but I found it I think oh. I found it slightly smug as well but you're right if this is bringing up dialogue and like you say I'm sure my parents-in-law will go and see it and it, I, I think I was having a conversation with someone else who does a show the other day and it, they, they said it reminded me of a, film a while ago that their mother went to go and see it if it brings up yeah, with people you should be seeing it. So there you go. If you feel you should see it, go and see it. And how charming was Daryl McCormack? Come on, we got we got to agree agree on that. I did. I hate to say it, I really didn't. I, oh the no! Them, I'm sorry, and I'm a huge Emma Thompson fan as well. I, well, yeah, I am a big Emma Thompson fan. It just it didn't land for me, and I can't quite put my finger on why. I felt like I was watching yet another kind of sort of BBC two-hander that had been made during COVID, when the BBC really sort of were, were inordinately smug about everything they made. So I'm sorry that that was me, but I think that both Henry and Spencer found lots to enjoy in this. Yeah. Vicky and I maybe not so much, but it is a certificate 15. It's showing at the picture house and the lights, so why don't you go and make your own minds up? <laughs> 
Okay, we've got to move on to the very last film of the week, which I feel is going to be a treat. We don't have long, but let's check in with the man from Toronto. Hey, Toronto. You ready to go back to work? We need an extraction of information. Meet at the safe house in 19 hours. You're early. You're on time, you're late. <laughs> Ain't that right? Follow me. You're gonna take me on the tour. Another super short trailer, this time for, I think, probably meaning there will be reasons for swearing. Um, right, Chris Rock, who has to be one of the hardest working men on Netflix at the moment, is... Oh, sorry, Chris Rock. I gotta say Chris Hart, because, of course, uh, Kevin Hart, because he works with The Rock. I am so sorry. He normally is with The Rock. He's with Woody Harrelson. That's so shaming. I did that twice. Um, he, he's got to be one of the hardest working men on Netflix. I don't know if anyone caught his um, real-life crime one with Wesley Snipes, which is quite fun. Anyway, he's back. High-concept action comedy, The Man from Toronto. He plays a hapless Teddy who, through a mix-up due to lack of printer toner, stay with me, ends up <laughs> being mistaken from The Man from Toronto, a cold-blooded contract killer played on full growling form by Woody Harrelson. So clearly they end up on a plane together to Puerto Rico and hijinks ensue. I don't know who to come to first on this, uh, but shout out if you want to. Out of the two Netflix offerings that we're, we've thrown up this week, is this one any better than Spiderhead? Yes. Straight for from Spencer. Tell me why, Spencer. It's an awful film, but Spiderhead was worse. Um, it's, uh, it's Kevin Hart plays the same character, just in different settings, different films, and it's the same with this one. Um, Luke, do you want to um, contribute to his, I, his I performance? Well, I couldn't disagree more about the quality of this film. At least Spiderhead was trying to do something. True. I think in this case, can someone just put Kevin Hart out of his misery? Oh, Did, no. Didn't we already do this with Central Intelligence and with Ride Along? And now we're yeah. just doing it again. And <laughs> it's... Can someone give him something else to do, please? I, it's literally, I thought this was Central Intelligence. And I also have my first marked laugh at exactly 52 minutes and 14 minutes into the film. But Central Intelligence is The Rock, isn't it? That I guess. Is, I yes, that is The Rock. Yeah. I believe Lorcan last once at 26 minutes. Oh, 24 minutes. There's, uh, there's um, Kevin Hart's... Uh, fiance or wife or partner um, is given this uh, incredibly hunky uh, special agent and he's just like no can, can can't the ugly guy do it why is this guy I thought that was generally quite funny yeah. but um, I, I, uh, I think the Woody Harrelson casting because I read that he, apparently he replaced Jason Statham and Jason Statham is a much better fit because Woody Harrelson's like like my parents would watch a Woody Harrelson film because they love Woody Harrelson, mm. but they would hate this. There's, there's, an, it's, it's such a miscast. Like yeah. this is Jason Statham. It's tricking yeah. people into watching yeah. a different kind of movie. Yeah. It's and not a Woody there was some movie. really unpleasant casual violence in it as well. There's some guy mm. who gets his head moaning on a golf course, which I, which I wasn't really. It, it's a really totally quite weird to me. I haven't seen. Okay, so this is Patrick Hughes who made the Hitman's. Wife and the, hit, the Hitman's Bodyguard and the Hitman's Bodyguard wife, yeah? yeah. And I presume they've both been pretty successful, and it's that kind of success mm. that's greenlit. Mm. This film. <laughs> I didn't mind those films as much. Uh, this one just, it completely, it wasn't a big thing for, as in. Um, there wasn't a lot of laughs, and I think it's because these two main characters don't work as a duo. Um, Woody Harrelson is—he has dry sense of humor, and Kevin Hart is like on, like on the nose. Mm. And because of that, there's a lot of moments where it's like timed, and it just—it misses it completely. And I wanted—it was like a background film for me, and I wanted it to be much funnier than it was. And uh, yeah, poor Kevin Hart for this. <laughs> Henry. 
we all sat through this, so have you got, I, I, as you said, we were going we were gonna roll this into another review, but then everyone's like, well, I've spent an hour and 50 minutes of my life watching this, come on, let us, let us talk. Henry, thoughts? Yeah, I mean, we've established that, you know, as an action comedy, it doesn't work as a comedy. I mean, I am jealous of everyone who had a marked laugh at some point in the film. <laughs> uh, as an action film, it also completely fails. It's looks it has this netflix thing again it keeps happening this is the adam project again it looks so cheap there's this airplane scene which is like disgustingly like put together in like microsoft paint and then there's a fight scene in the end in a gym which is made to look oh maybe it's kind of like one shot except you can like see the kind of scissor cuts from where they've edited it all together mm-hmm. and where they've clearly put in stunt doubles or, or like, that's where the budget effects. went the budget went on joker and the thief to make that a successful like stunt scene because yeah. it needed that music and those edit cuts. Okay, so I think we can wholeheartedly agree then this week as a studio that uh, don't bother with the Netflix release The Man from Toronto. That is it for next week. I apologise for my occasional missteps this week. It's been... It's been a stressful one. But we are going to leave you with some music from The King. Um, Next week... Tune in in two weeks' time. Have a great Saturday. And, we, yeah, like I say, we're going to leave you with one of Elvis's best numbers. Thanks very much. Goodbye.